Welcome to The Data Station. Each week, we explore the world of data by talking to the people shaping its future. You'll learn about new data technology and trends and how data teams and processes are run at top companies. The Data Stack Show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. You can learn more at rudderstack.com. Welcome back to The Data Stack Show. Costas, we have another exciting one today. We're going to talk about stream processing. We have actually talked about this subject a good bit on the show, but this is pretty interesting because DeVore from Cascada, which was recently acquired by Datastax, we'll talk about that a little bit, built a technology that's really focused on stream processing specifically for ML use cases and kind of closing the gap between you know, the actual sort of building of insights and features and then actually serving those. Um, and it's pretty fascinating. What I'm really interested in is what they saw or sort of maybe the lack in the market that they noticed that caused them to want to build something new, in large part because you have a lot of really good, really high power stream processing tools. You have things like feature stores. You have all sorts of interesting low latency ways to serve stuff. The pieces are there in order to sort of actually build and deliver um, cool stuff you know, even from a stream. But obviously it wasn't sufficient. So that's what I want to ask about. How about you? Yeah, I think it's a very interesting case. I mean, Cascada is a very interesting case because it's, it is a streaming processing um, engine, but it's, it emerged as the solution to a problem that is like very use case specific and it has to do with machine learning, right? So... It's going to be very interesting. And like one of the things that I want to talk about is how we go from something like a feature store, which is supposed to be like one of the possible solutions out there in the ML problems to something like Cascada, right? What are yep. the differences? Why we need something that is, let's say, more unified in a way, in terms of both like the technology, but also like the experience of the user that uses the solution. So that's like one of the things that I'm very interested to discuss. And yeah, like learn about like the journey and also learn about the journey of, you know, like getting acquired by data stacks and yeah, not about like the acquisition itself, but more about like the vision or like sure. how something that is if you think about it like it's actually like quite interesting like data stacks is based on apache cassandra which is like a 10 years old technology right and then you have something that it's super let's say new in terms of and the need and, and even the see, technologies it's built on yep and so it's very interesting to see like how these things like come together and why and what's the potential output of this, right? So it will be very interesting like to discuss about all these things. All right. Well, let's dig in and talk with Devor. Devor, welcome to the Data Stack Show. Hi, great to be with you. All right. Well, we have some exciting things to talk about. You've had quite the journey over the last couple months, you know, in terms of acquisitions, open sourcing stuff, 
which is which is all really cool. Let's look back a little bit in history, though, because this isn't the first time you've open sourced technology related to streaming, which is kind of cool that you've been able to do that a couple times now. But you were at Google. And can you tell us a little bit about Google and what you were doing there and then what you built in open source there? Oh, yeah. So when I was at Google, it was like early days of Google Cloud, and we were building a unified programming model for batch and stream processing that ultimately resulted in the Apache Beam project. It was a quite successful project with a relatively large number of companies around the world using it, contributing it. And then, you know, a few years later, me and my co-founder left Google to start a company in a similar space. That kind of led to Cascada, the founding of Cascada, that really tried to nail the problem of building predictive behavioral machine learning model from event-based data. Obviously, we were working at this problem for quite a while that resulted in an acquisition by Datastax about three months ago. And yeah, happy to be with you talking about all of this journey across, you know, from Google to Cascada to Datastax and everything in between. Sure. You've had such a focus on streaming. I'm interested to know, I mean, you obviously are you know, have been a professional software engineer and working with data for quite some time now. Did you have an interest in stream processing or is that something that you found at Google and started to work on at Google? I started working at that at Google. I didn't, I was not looking at stream processing pre, I guess, 2013. Yeah. And basically started around late 2013, looking into it. And now I guess this year would be a decade that (laughs) I am looking at this problem. Yeah, a decade of streaming. Well, I mean, I guess it's interesting to think back on 2013. I mean, there were infrastructure limitations that made certain stream processing things pretty difficult or at a minimum, like pretty expensive. So can you tell us, so you get into stream processing at Google, you work on Beam, you open source Beam, but Beam and then, you know, of course, there are a number of other technologies out there around stream processing, you know, even even within Apache. But those weren't sufficient for what you wanted to do. So why build something new when at that point, you know, yep. there were multiple major players and multiple different architectures running at pretty large organizations at scale for stream processing use cases? Yeah. So when we started looking at the problem of machine learning, we discovered that neither batch solutions, neither streaming solutions, neither, you know, Beam solves this problem well, right? And so if you start thinking about building behavioral machine learning, right? So think about these are kind of recommendation engines, churn prediction models, right? Something about predicting the future, future action, future interest based on what has happened in the past. Right, like when you look at that nature of that problem, it's you have to process historical data, observe feature values, generate training examples at the right points in time to be able to train the model. That problem looks like more like analytics, looks more like batch, looks more like historical data processing. And then you have this kind of inference problem where you want to take real-time data and give it the most recent feature vector to give it to the model and then produce a real-time prediction. And so when you look at that problem, 
right? Like it's not well solved by batch because you have too big of a latency. It's not well solved by streaming system because you can't have, it's very hard to get this kind of historical component on top of it. And so we made a conclusion that the fundamentally existing systems are not well built for that, right? Obviously, other people at around the same time have been looking at the same solutions and that they found ways of hacking certain things together to solve the problem. And from that work, feature stores or, you know, common feature stores came to be, right? They tried yep. to create an online store and offline store. It's really kind of a divergent architecture to try to solve these different use cases on top of the same data. And yep. we are more of a system builders than, you know, hacking things on top of systems. So we took the problem really deep and then designed the system, you know, that's really built for the problem at hand. And the problem at hand we see as, you know, easily connecting to the data, describing features in a in an easy way where you can iterate in a place like a notebook, right? Test hypothesis, test a lot of features very quickly that gives you immediate kind of backfill kind of analysis of features at any point in time. And once you train the model, like really with a click of a button or, you know, checking features as code into production, you can compute and serve those features with low latency, right? All from the same system that is purpose-built for this problem. And that's kind of how Cascada was born. And, you know, we found some funding for it. We found a team for it and the team built the product and then we took it to market. And, you know, I guess the rest is history. Very cool. Can we actually talk about, you sort of mentioned that there's, you know, you have these sort of two separate problems, right? And that, you know, there's sort of an analytics type use case, which is looking historically. And then you have the actual sort of ingestion of the real-time data that allows you to sort of feed the model and actually create an yeah. experience, right? Like a, a hotel recommendation or, you know, a product recommendation or something. So can you describe the way that you saw that materialize in terms of both infrastructure and teams? Were there different teams working on those separate problems? You know, like you, because a lot of times you'll see sort of data science is working on the model and, you know, sort of more of the like analytics predictive piece. And then it's a pretty heavy engineering problem to actually like grab the feature and then like, you know, it needs to be served in a website or app. Can you describe the common patterns around that breakdown and how people sort of hacked that together? Yeah, absolutely. So we think that there are two fundamental problems. Problem number one is really finding predictive signal inside of your data. And that is very kind of company data problem specific, right? If you have a bunch of data coming from your app, right? Think of it, click stream, tap stream, or you know, engagement information coming from the app, that's a lot of data and it's relatively hard to find what is really predictive signal that tells you what the user might be interested in, whether they'll, you know, buy something, whether they will, you know, renew a subscription, what they may be interested in, why they are here and so on, right? That's the problem of finding quality predictive signal out of clickstream, event stream, data. Yeah. Sure. That problem becomes harder the more data gets messy. 
if you are getting it from multiple places, from multiple applications, mm. right? And schemas and other things evolve over time. So kind of figuring things out there tends to be more of a data modeling extraction of useful signal. And we feel that's a key part of getting machine learning and AI right. There is a different problem is the problem of scale. And that is kind of how can I, once I know the model, once I know what my features are, how to open that model at scale with low latency and good unit economics. And that problem gets harder the, the more, you know, the more scale you have, right? And those are two problems and usually two different people are best to solve two different problems, right? We've seen in the data community a lot of talk recently or the last few years about the scale side of things. And I think that's very warranted because it's a hard problem, right? And people pushing the, the boundaries here tend to work at big companies typically in the Bay Area that have, you know, really large scale and then they start hitting these problems, right? And I think that's a really, you know, hard and difficult problem to solve. But I just want to make sure that we don't forget that all to get to a really good AI, it's what most people should do is focus on extracting quality signal. The better mm -hmm. the signal is, uh, the more predictive it is, it's easier to build a model, it's cheaper, right? And it's actually doing work that is company-specific. It's very leveraged work. Whereas, you know, distributed systems, they are very kind of common and horizontal and not specific to a company that, mm. that, that may be, you know, doing it. So we often think about this infrastructure be more horizontal and should probably be done in an open source community with other people that, you know, can kind of jointly innovate on it. And then companies really, we think, should focus on their quality signal from their data because that's really leveraged for them. That's unique business value to them. Makes total sense. Okay, so walk us, let's do a breakdown of Cascada with kind of maybe a sample company. So let's say, you know, I'm a company that, you know, sells maybe it's retail products, you know, online or something, you know, sort of, sort of large scale e-commerce. I have multiple websites, maybe even multiple mobile apps. I'm probably ingesting some sort of log data, you know, from my production you know, my production databases. And so I have multiple different data formats coming in from multiple different sources, you know, and I want to, let's say, you know, we have multiple brands and I want to know if someone's purchased these things from this brand, what other products from this other brand could I maybe cross sell them on, right? Mm -hmm. How, what does it look like for my company to implement Cascada? Like, you know, who are the people involved? And how do we implement it? Yeah. So what you have described here, if I can generalize a bit, is a recommendation engine. Yeah. Right. And people have been looking at recommendation engines for a while. It's like one of the first use cases of machine learning. And obviously in many industries, they have been, they have been successfully implemented. The interesting thing is when you look at uh, recommendation engines and quality of them is it's quite interesting what you can find right and so 
let's I'll start with a few examples here, right? So let's say that today you buy a couch, right? What is the chance that you're gonna buy a couch next week? Well, you know, basic recommendation model will conclude you bought a couch this week, you might buy a couch next week. <laughs> but we both know that's not how it works. Yeah. Right. And so there are some recommendation engines that, you know, fail in miserable ways, you know, in this way, without understanding who you are and why you bought it. Right. If you are a reseller of couches, sure, you know, more couches this week, more couches next week. But if you're buying for your own home, if you bought the couch this week, maybe you're interested in a coffee table, but not in another couch. Right. Like we yep. have to really understand who the customer is, why they are here to be able to provide good recommendations, right? That's yep. key, right? Like sometimes recommendations are just totally off. And if you can search online, you'll find examples where people kind of laugh at, at you know, quality of these things when they are not done well. And so when you think about how can I do this well, it's about understanding motivation and driving signal from it interaction on a digital platform to understand why the person is here, right? And so it's, you know, what they are searching, not just what they are buying, how frequently they are searching something, right? And then being able to do this quickly to give them in a session personalized experience based on the reason why they are here today, for example. I think that's key. How you do that you have to focus on the signal coming from their interactions with the app. And I have, in every case we looked, we always find that we can, you know, separate somebody buying a couch for themselves and somebody who is a reseller of couches, right? As long as you focus on the, their interactions on the site tends to look very different. And if you derive the signal, out of the event-based data, then the model can, you know, latch on it, learn and give good predictions that separate one experience from another, right? That's key, right? And that's what we like to enable customers to do. And most often, once they use our technology, they find things that they have not known about their user base or, you know, the user base before they started. And that's what we consider mm. success. Once you discover predictive things and segmentation of your users that was not clear before you started, that is success. Then you are discovering something about your business, about your users from your data, and that makes the company better. Right? Makes like total that, sense. You know, that's what we are all about. Yeah. So let's get practical for a second. So if I'm a user of if I'm implementing Cascada, right? Like I, you know, I get it, I get it set up, right? And running. And so are there just endpoints that I point my, you know, app and website and production databases at? Like it just, will it, it just ingest them no matter the schema? It's, is it as simple as that? Yeah. So we obviously want to load data from as many places as possible, right? And we try to make that as easy as possible. Obviously, we can't read it from anywhere <laughs> or we can't read right. it from everywhere, but we can read it from common places that people, you know, store data, right? We typically suggest people for doing some early exploration to start with parquet formatted files with kind of scheme, you know, structured data in parquet formatted files 
store in some cloud storage type place, yep. uh, perhaps you know managed by Iceberg or something like that, is what we usually recommend. But we can read it from plenty of places, usually with a few lines of code, just kind of specifying the location, and then we can read structured data relatively easily. We do not shine on unstructured data today. Yep, makes total sense. And then. Once the data makes it into Cascada, what's the user experience like? What are you know? How does how am I trying to find the signal and the noise using Cascada in the platform? Yeah. So first, we tell people usually to use the tools they like. Everything we do today is API first, right? So you can open a Jupyter notebook, IPython notebook, do one pip install. That's one line of code. Then you load the data from somewhere. That's another line of code. And then after that, you can build features, test features, and use all the machine learning libraries that you like, right? Scikit-learn, PyTorch, whatever you like, we generally support. So think of our product as API first, data frames in, data frames out, and you can connect it with uh, all the tools that exist in the machine learning ecosystem that obviously practitioners, you know, have learned to love over the last, you know, couple of years. Yep, makes total sense. All right, well, I've been uh, I've been hammering you with questions, Costas. Please jump in here because I know you probably have a ton of questions yourself. Yeah, thank you, Eric. So, Davor, like I have, I want to ask you. You mentioned like a couple of different, let's say, like product or technology categories, like feature stores feature engines and so then obviously there's also like the whole idea of like having like a streaming processing engine so what is cascada like primarily is it like a streaming data processing engine feature store or something yeah. else it's a hard it you know we obviously need a label for people to understand and at cascada we called it a feature engine Right? Like it's like feature store, but really focused on generating features as opposed to storing and serving them. Like, and that's kind of how we coined the term feature engine. And some other companies have have caught on. Like there is another company I think called Sumatra that also tried similar approaches in this space. So we consider ourselves a feature engine, right? The engine that can help you generate feature values at any point in time or at the time of now for inference and so on. So generation of features from underlying raw data, we call that feature engine. Recently, we open source Cascada code and we started calling it modern open source event processing because what we figured out that what we built is actually generalizes to all processing of events right? Be it batchy, be it in streaming mode, like be it in any way, shape or form. And so we have our kind of our website now talks about modern open source event processing as our positioning today. And that's more naturally how it evolved rather than our intention. Our intention wasn't to build a generic event processing system. It's just that we discovered that by sort of by accident, by solving I guess the machine learning problem, you know, well. Yeah, makes a little sense. All right. So if someone like takes a look in a, 
let's say like a typical feature store architecture, you usually see two main components there, right? Like you have, let's say the offline processing that happens there, or like, let's say the batch processing where you go get all your historical data, use that to build the model, whatever. And as part of that, you also define like the features that you need for that, right? And then, of course, you have the online version, which is, okay, what uh, new data comes that we need to turn into features that we have previously defined and use them somehow, right? With Cascada, um, and usually like in feature stores, you have different technologies implementing each side, right? Which kind of makes sense because historically, yep. let's say data processing platforms are focusing either in one or the other, like they are either like streaming or bots and not yep. How it works with Cascada. Like if I decide like to use Cascada, am I going to have two architectures implemented? One, how does it work? Yeah. So this architecture of online store and offline store, this is what I think is, you know, hack, hack under quotation here around how can I stitch existing systems to solve the problem? And I realized that they are not really built for it. So I need to put multiple of them and use them in different places to try to get, you know, the outcome and unit economics that, that I like. Mm -hmm. Right. And so. If we kind of look at these two paths, right? I think streaming systems are really good in this inference path as take the recent data, compute something at, at, that is relatively recent with low latency and serve the results, right? These are kind of materialized views on yeah. top of event-based data. And I think we have good systems to do that. On the batch side of things, right? I think obviously we have Spark and other systems that can process vast amounts of data. But often we find when you think about the user experience, like if you know which features you want, it's easy to write, you know, data processing pipeline that computes it. But whenever we talk to ML teams, we often find that what they need is the ability to test hypothesis, to try to find signal that is actually relevant for their use case. Mm -hmm. And that is, that can, doing you doing that in a batch system and then running a backfill job that populates it at all possible points in time for all entities, for all features, right? That's really not great. And most yep. of these values computed will never be used. Mm -hmm. And so we think that the right solution to this problem is Take a feature definition that is described easily, declaratively, and mm -hmm. that can kind of easily cross this training to production gap, right? Mm -hmm. It can run in training without doing kind of complicated backfill that stores everything at every point in time, but compute feature or training examples when, the, when you need them, generate easily with simple queries, right? With tiny queries, complicated data-dependent windows and data-dependent features, deliver them to training, and literally with a click of a button, be able to maintain real-time materialized views over streams for a production use case. And so that's kind of how we view it, right? It's just one single architecture purpose-built to process streams or event-based data, be it historic, be it 
real time. Mm. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And what I hear is that building a system like Cascada or like trying to solve the problem of Cascada is like solving. We need to innovate, like, let's say in two fronts. Like one is like the technology itself, right? Like something that can incorporate like both, uh, let's say, the streaming and the bots paradigms in one paradigm. Uh, but it's also, from what I hear, like a user experience or developer experience problem. Like we need to figure out like what's the right way for our user, in this case, like an ML engineer or like a data scientist, to interact with the data and help them, guardrail them, like in figuring out much faster uh, what's the signal out of the noise, right? Yeah. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit more about that because I'm pretty sure that like people have heard a lot in the past couple of years about like how to work with streaming data, how to have like low latencies, high throughputs, distributed systems, blah, 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 all that stuff. Yep. But I think these experience parts, it's still like very new and still like mainly unexplored to be honest. So what it takes from your experience by building Cascada to deliver this experience, what is needed and how you... What did you build to address them? So I think it's really important to be able to interact with data in a natural declarative way where you can just kind of state the intention of what you are trying to compute and the underlying system figures out the best way of implementing that. So, right, like these really high levels of abstractions where you describe in a natural way what is that you need to compute. So let's talk about machine learning features, right? Like there is a feature definition. The feature definition can be something as simple as number of sessions you have had in the last month, right? It's a very simple feature. You have one window, right? It's a one month window. You're counting number of logins. That's probably number of sessions right in a particular window great we can define that but then in machine learning use cases you have more things thing is when to observe this feature right like streaming system makes one simple assumption the only time you are interested in observing this feature is the time of now yep right like what happened three years ago well streaming that's not a concern for streaming system but somebody building machine learning models Right, like needs to observe this feature that in a specific mo- point in time that matches the model context, matches how the prediction is being made. And that is at very, di- those features happen, those times happen at the different points in time for different users, for different entities. Right. And now we have to describe what we want in a natural way. Right. So we want to count number of sessions in the last month. We need to observe it you know, 30 days before or after certain event, maybe 30 days after they signed up for service, right? Like maybe that's the right point in time to to observe that feature, right? Then you have to explain to the system when that time is, right? And then usually in machine learning or at least in supervised learning, you have the concept of labeling it. So you have to observe something at that point in time and then move it to the future to compute the label, what has actually happened, right? So that's the how 
a practitioner, how ML engineer thinks about the problem, mm. right? So what's the feature definition? When it should be observed in a data-dependent way and how to label that example at some other point in time, mm -hmm. right? So those are the natural abstractions that, that ML engineers or any ML practitioner cares about. And these are kind of quite difficult to do in a tabular way, kind of the SQL has championed. And so what we have is a simple query language that can do these aggregations, right? Like this feature definition looks like SQL, like count number of sessions. Mm -hmm. But what we really add on is powerful time-based semantics that help you describe when the feature is observed, how the training example is labeled to make it really easy and tiny to, to compute training data sets in few lines of code. And the mm -hmm. system take care, takes care of the rest. I think that's the real power that, that we bring, bring to, to our community. All right. That's super cool. And uh, okay, one of the like, I don't know, like, I think one of the main issues are like SQL, like probably always had as a declarative language, which by the way, is like the definition of a declarative language. That's the whole point, right? Like I'm going to describe to you what I want and like you, the database, go and figure it out. And it's at least yep. don't bother me with like the, the ugly details, but it, it was never easy, like to, or intuitive, let's say to work with time and, uh, um, yeah, that's one part, like some other things that are like hard is like anything that has to do with like more imperative kind of like programming, like yep. like loops and all these things. So can you tell us like a little bit more about, let's say the new syntax that you figured out is like best for working with time, right? Because obviously like in we're talking about events here. Time is always yeah. present, right? Exactly. Even if we are not talking about a mail, but events is pretty much like what I usually tend to say is like, like, like time series data, but they are not uh, with more dimensionality in their added, like with That's more exactly metadata. Right. That is exactly right. So, so yeah, but please tell us like, what are the constructs that are like missing? Yeah. from The most important, I think, difference that we bring to our community is the concept of a timeline. So when an event happens, it really describes a change, right? Mm -hmm. Like you logged in, that really increases number of sessions by one, right? And so if we want to process like th this data over time, right? It's really about that the feature value changes over time. It's really a timeline. It's a graph, right? It's not a computation at the end of time. It is how the feature value has changed over time. And these events just describe points in time when the feature value went from 10 to 11. And mm -hmm. so our constructs produce timelines, right? When you say, you know, summing integers, right? Like all systems will tell you, okay, the sum is 50, right? At the end of time or current sum is 42. Right? We don't tell you that current sum is 42 or the total sum is 50. We produce a timeline, right? The, the sum has changed this way over the period mm -hmm. of time, 
right? And that is the output, the basic output of primitive operations. You produce a timeline that describe how feature has changed over time. And then you have these kind of time selectors, let's call them that way, right? Like time selectors that select when such a feature should be observed, when such a feature should be labeled, right? So you can kind of manipulate timelines, mm-hmm. right? Like that's how I would describe Cascara. It's built for manipulating timeline. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's super interesting. And like you mentioned that the syntax is like SQL-like, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, it is declarative. So that certainly, you know, matches kind of SQL perspective on mm-hmm. things. We don't have, you know, select, star, from, okay. where, and these types of, you know, keywords mm-hmm. in the language. Yeah. So from a how to like from a usability standpoint, because okay, like SQL is something like pretty much everyone knows, right? Like yeah. if you have worked with data, like even for a short period of time in your life, you have seen like SQL. So it's a very, I'll say that's like a, together with Excel and JavaScript out there in terms of how global, you know, like yeah. the syntax is. Why go after, let's say, a completely different like syntax instead of enriching standard SQL with new constructs, right? Right. So we have had these debates for a long time, right? Like we generally chose to make some changes as opposed to add some additions, because if we were just adding additions, certain things would be unnatural Mm -hmm. and would surprise people. Right. And so we decided that, that doesn't make sense. That this tabular model that SQL, you know, enforces is not the best underlying concept for building these abstractions. Yeah. On the other hand, yes, it's a trade-off between some learning curve that Cascada may introduce, but we think of that as, you know, these are simple concepts. Like if you just understand that this is a timeline. And the definition of what you're computing is all the same, but you're just selecting where, like, if you understand the concepts, right, these are very tiny snippets that, right, that anytime you start a new, using a new product, there is some learning curve. Excel has its own DSL inside Excel. People have been using Excel. Everybody uses Excel, right? Like, these are... This is of that nature. You describe, you know, some formula that looks like, you know, few functions and few selectors, right? This is not, you're not, you don't need to go to school to do this, right? You you read the documentation, you look at three examples and, you know, you should know what's going on, right? Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Any other library, right? Like you have to understand, you know, constructs, you know, user model, off it and then you start using it and yeah uh, we don't make makes total sense and like your experience with because okay you are we've been talking like all this time about like primarily let's say like ML practitioners mm-hmm. so like people that they primarily live like in Python land right so okay I mean if they have like the use SQL they can do it but like let's say their native language is like Python so 
what did you like how what was your experience working with them like with people that they are coming like from a very like imperative programming kind of like environment and getting into like a declarative yeah so we try to merge these worlds so right like if you go to our website and kind of see the flavor of what we built it looks like python it has okay. a pipe of operator just like python right it is right like we recognize that primary programming language for, for our community is Python, that most ML libraries are built for Python, right? And so we try to be as close to Python as we can and make it super easy to integrate with IPython notebooks, right? Yeah. Like that's, you know, that has been a specific design point all along. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. We could keep chatting about that stuff like for hours, but there's also like something great that happened like lately uh, about Cascada that was like the acquisition or merged with like data stacks. So I'd love to understand like why this happened, right? Like what's like the, like the vision behind merging these two products together, right? Like. Everyone knows like data stacks and Apache Cassandra. Like, I mean, Apache Cassandra has been around for a while, right? Like it's not something <laughs> new. And it's like a database system with like very specific use cases. So tell us more about that. Like what should we expect as like the child of these marriage? Yep, absolutely. So. Obviously, DataStax is rooted in, in Apache Cassandra. Apache Cassandra is one of the first big data systems that have been built. All right. It's, you know, it's all, all over a decade old and it's still being used by so many companies to solve, to solve, to store and serve transactional data. Netflix uses it for everything. Uber uses it for everything, right? Like and plenty of others, right? Like this is a really key storage system, even a decade, over a decade after it was originally built. And it has been proven time and time again, when, if you really want to scale, right? Like with good unit economics, you go to Cassandra. That has been kind of widely understood. And obviously DataStax has been a company around Cassandra, helping users adopt. Over the last few years, DataStax moved into database as a service market uh, with the launch of Astra, which is like a fully managed database as a service product that makes usage of Cassandra easier, cloud native, and to support high growth applications, right? And so what we've been looking at is what is the real opportunity here, right? Obviously, databases are not super interesting in 2023, like many people see databases as a solved problem. But AI is obviously the interest of most high growth apps today. Mm. And so DataStack strategy is to serve smart, high growth applications for the you know, decade to come, right? And these applications obviously need a really good storage system like Apache Cassandra to serve and store transactional data. But that's not enough for the apps that are going to be built in the next decade, right? They need streaming capabilities. They need to compute things from real-time data to serve 
you know, re real-time derived data inside the applications, and they need things like smart predictions, right? Recommendation engines, churn prediction, and many other things that personalize the app experience. And so what we are really building here is the best solution to build modern, smart, high-growth applications. And you need a storage system, you need a compute system, you need the AI system to be able to serve high-growth applications for a decade to come. Okay, that's super exciting. So how is this, like which part of this vision is like served from Cassandra and what is like Cascada adding to that, right? Like how together they materialize this vision. Yeah, so Cassandra is obviously the storage system that has great unit economics and it scales infinitely. So Cassandra is the best way to store user-specific information and be able to serve it with low latency. Then we have in our portfolio streaming systems, right? Like based on Apache Pulsar mostly, but you know, Kafka compatible that can ingest, ingest data coming from, you know, anywhere, coming mm -hmm. from high growth applications. And then we bring Cascada into the fold, which is really about computing things that you need for real-time machine learning. Mm -hmm. And that again, you can again store and serve out of Cassandra. So it's really about completing the story, completing the picture for uh, you know, serving high growth applications. Mm -hmm. You can ingest data, you can store data, you can manipulate data to compute what you need to be able to build smart, high growth applications. Yeah, that makes total sense. And just like to remind our audience, Cascada got open sourced recently, mm -hmm. right? So there is GitHub repo out there with, let's say, the core engine of Cascada for event processing. It's also like building on top of like some very interesting like technologies. We have Apache Arrow here, we have Rust. So I think even if someone doesn't, let's say, have to use it in production, I think just going and seeing like how the system is built, like the assumptions, it's a very modern system. And I think like it's going to be like the inspiration, like from many people like who want like either to use or like build something like that. So go and check it on uh, GitHub. Go check like cascada.io, like you can get like all the links from there. And I think what is important is for you to get feedback from all the people, right? So Maybe. go ahead, please. Yeah, we'd love to engage with folks in the community, listen to their feedback, and obviously advance the state of the art in event processing, particularly for ML use cases. And so we certainly invite everybody to come along, join us, uh, provide comments, and even participate or contribute as they see fit. So everybody's welcome. That's awesome. Is Cascada, uh, is there a requirement for the open source Cascada to have Cassandra also, or it can be used uh, as a standalone solution for something? It can be totally used standalone, right? So just for quick evaluation, you can do a real simple pip install and you can play with it on your machine. It requires no connections anywhere, requires no installation of Cassandra. 
right? Like for trying things out, just a simple pip install, like I think it can be easier. Okay, that's awesome. Eric, all yours again. Yeah, this has been such a fascinating conversation and it is exciting to look under the hood. I mean, you know, Arrow and, and Rust and other technologies like that. Um, certainly very exciting, you know, not only for Casas and I, but I think our audience. But Devor, question for you. So when we think about a technology like Cascada, do you envision this solving the, you know, let's say like operationalizing ML, you know, and sort of closing the gap between those two problems we discussed? Do you envision Cascada making that problem a lot easier for larger companies, right? So, you know, you've mentioned a couple of gigantic organizations. And of course, you know, if you're doing real-time recommendations, you need to be a company of a certain scale, right? You need to have enough data and you need to have enough engineering resources, you know, in order for that to be worth it. Even to your point, you know, you, you know, the unit economics have to work out, you know, for your recommendations engine to, you know, have positive ROI. But do you think something like Cascada can actually also democratize that process for companies who maybe aren't, they don't have multiple different teams who can manage the different parts of this. Do you envision it or have you even seen with your users or customers it actually making it easier for maybe a single team to sort of build and ship things that maybe would have taken them another couple of years to get to just simply from a resource standpoint, team standpoint, fragmented infrastructure? That is exactly what we hope the impact on our community to be, right? Like nothing that I have talked about is novel in a sense that it couldn't be built, right? Like this is software. Anything can be built, right? Like literally we have not invented new math, right? Like anything can be built. (laughs) It's it, it, right? Like it's just the complexity and how many people you need to be able to reliably get to success, right? Like people have real-time recommendations. You can find online posts from, I don't know, Netflix that talk about these problems and how many years it took them to get to the system they have today, right? And obviously businesses like that had business need to solve the problem and there was nothing available in the market and they had to, you know, figure out the problem because it was lucrative for them, right? It was highly leveraged. Right. So it was worth it for them to solve. Right. And we, I think, are significantly reducing the total cost of ownership, right, of building something like this. Right. It's becoming much, much cheaper to do it. Right. And which means that there are so many more models that can be put in production because if the cost is so much smaller, right, there are so many more models that have a positive ROI. Right, that have a lucrative ROI. And that's what we hope is the ultimate impact once, you know, this gets adopted in, in, in larger numbers. Yeah, it makes total sense. Well, let's end with maybe some practical advice on how, like, you know, if I have a, let's say I'm, you know, a machine learning engineer or working, you know, in, in kind of the context of data science, and I want to try this out. Would you recommend, you know, playing around with building, you know, trying to build some features in Cascada that I maybe have already 
built, you know, with my existing system and just experiencing how much sort of more flexible it is? Or would you suggest maybe starting out with more of an exploratory exercise and trying to find that signal and the noise that you talked about? I think that depends who are you talking to, right? If you are a person who thinks about the signal, right, then I would say, right, like, try it, just do a pip install on your laptop and just play with it, right? Yeah. And, you know, consider it success if you discover new things that you did not know an hour ago, right? That is success. You've discovered a new predictive signal that was not obvious to you, right? Like if you are a person who cares about extracting signal, play and just explore and measure yourself on what you have learned from data that you didn't know before. Yeah. If you are more engineer who cares about who cares about reliability, stability of production, unit economics, what's the latency in production, right? Then I would say the best thing would be, you know, implement a, you know, three simple features, you know, check in features as code and see how easy it is to populate a feature store, right? That you can just kind of serve it from any database like, like Cassandra or something else, right? With a simple API call to give the most recent feature vector. I just, I would say, focus on getting to production part if that's what you care about. Makes total sense. Okay, one last question. And this one's more for maybe the listeners who are early in their career. Maybe they work more on the data engineering or, or operational side, less on the machine learning side. But they know, okay, I need to familiarize myself with ML because it's going to increasingly you know, infiltrate you know, many aspects of data within an organization. So, you know, regardless of technology, you've been, you know, operationalizing ML for, you know, a long time now. Do you have any advice for that person who's really good on the op side, but maybe they want to explore the ML side? Yeah, so I'd say advice would be like, you are really well positioned and you ha you are in a place that is likely going to be interesting for a long time, right? We are discovering that data is really powerful and every company is becoming data company and seeing how they can leverage data that they have in the best way possible. So you're kind of really well positioned, right? If you are on the engineering side, you probably care more about reliability, latency, throughput, unit economics, and so on. Right. And I think here you want to understand the systems the best you can, understand what they are built for. And every single time when you are evaluating a system, ask yourself what the system is not built for. Right. What has mm -hmm. been sacrificed to achieve the benefits you just talked to me about that that enabled you to achieve that like what did you ignore what did you deprioritize right like mm. th those type of architectural analysis i would you know wish everybody understood and focused right so not running for the next cool thing but really understanding the trade-offs in the design of different systems what they are mm. built for and how to apply them well right that would be like Understanding and knowing that, I think, unlocks, you know, an engineer's career 
and you know you started growing and growing so understanding the systems right and particularly what is not prioritized mm. to achieve the benefits that you know people like to talk about such wise advice yeah noticing what's not there is often much more powerful than simply understanding what's there so wonderful advice Devor, this has been such a great conversation and we're so glad that you gave us some time to come on the show. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to both of you. A fascinating conversation with Devor of Cascada, which was acquired by Datastax. Cascada's really interesting story about what they envision in terms of Cascada being integrated into Datastax, you know, which you know, sort of operates a lot of stuff on top of Cassandra. So lots of cool stuff there, I think, for the future. But Cascada is also open source, and it does a lot of interesting things in terms of making it easier to not only discover interesting potential features and data sets, but also like deliver those and serve those, which is really interesting. One of the things that I thought was fascinating about this conversation was the decision to essentially create a new language as part of the system. Because the system in and of itself is capable of doing some really interesting, cool things. But they chose to sort of write a language that this is, you know, probably a really a really bad way to describe it, but it's almost a mix between SQL and Python, right? It's mm-hmm. declarative, but it's in the flavor of Python. Uh, which I thought was fascinating. And so it is. it really does seem like they're kind of meeting in the middle of these two worlds of sort of the operational side and more of the statistical side. So that, I don't know, that's a, that was a fascinating approach. I'm certainly going to be thinking about that one. What stuck out to you? Yeah, 100%. I think like the most, so there are like two things that I keep like from this conversation. One, it has to do with like building the technology itself and like how part of the problem it is and why it's not something that can be, let's say, solved with just like stitching together technologies. But you really need like to start thinking like in first principles and build a new system in a way, right? That's one thing. But that's, let's say, the bread and butter of like innovation in technology, right? What I found like extremely interesting is how important the user experience also is. Like, and that's what's like the connection with what you're saying about the language. Like the reason they ended up building a new language is because they were trying to figure out what's the right way for our users, in this case, ML engineers, to interact and work with the data and somehow like God railed them into figuring out uh, what's the signal out of all this noise out there, right? And exactly what you said, like it's, they had to find the good things from all the different paradigm shops out there and put them together in a way that feel like native to their user, which is the ML engineer, right? And the ML engineer, yeah, lives in Python land. They use Python. Like you cannot change that. All the libraries are in Python, no matter like how they work with the data, 
where they will have to do some processing with the data, Python will be needed. So it is yeah. important to build the right experiences there. And we see that like this experience, the need for this experience is also drives new innovation, like building a new language on top of the processing system that we have. So, and that's something that like I see, I, I think we will see more and more of in the data infrastructure space as we try to make, like democratize access to all these technologies, which is probably something that will get even further accelerated because of all the recent developments with AI and all that stuff. So yeah, like that's what I keep and I'm looking forward to chat again and see what comes out from putting Cassandra together with Cascada. Absolutely. Well, another good one in the books. Thanks for listening to the DataStack Show as always, and we will catch you on the next one. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the DataStack Show. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get notified about new episodes every week. We'd also love your feedback. You can email me, Eric Dodds, at eric at datastackshow.com. That's E-R-I-C at datastackshow.com. The show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. Learn how to build a CDP on your data warehouse at rudderstack.com.